0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with RFF Senior Fellow Alan Krupnik about the value of a statistical life, or VSL. As we all try to stay safe during the coronavirus pandemic, and I hope you, your family members, and your loved ones are staying safe, some analysts have started to ask the question, how much economic pain is appropriate to withstand In order to protect public health? That question is studded with ethical and moral landmines, but it points us directly to understanding the value of a statistical life. In today's episode, Alan will help us understand the history of the VSL concept, different methods for calculating it, and how VSL might be applied or not applied in today's rapidly changing world. Stay with us. Okay, Alan Krupnik, uh, my colleague and friend uh, from Resources for the Future. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Well, it's my pleasure, Daniel. I consider you my friend as well, so it's great to be talking to you. Absolutely, and we talk probably multiple times per week, so, um, so it's nice to feel at home talking to you, partly because I am literally at home talking to you, and I imagine you are as well. I am. So, Alan, today we're going to talk about the value of a statistical life, which is a tool used in uh, regulatory analysis and cost-benefit analysis, uh, whereby we sort of approximate uh, the value of uh, preventing uh, deaths uh, through regulatory policy. I I may have butchered that definition a little bit, uh, but you're going to help us understand what the (laughs) correct definition is.
1: Yeah, hopefully.
0: Yeah, hopefully, uh, of a VSL. And um, uh, so, but, but before we actually talk about the definition of the term, can you give us a, a little bit of background on why we need uh, a, a concept such as the value of statistical life when we think about benefit cost analysis and, and regulatory analysis?
1: Well, for um, benefit cost analysis, let's say, of regulations, like you mentioned, uh, let's think about a regulation that would reduce pollution. And we want to compare the cost of that regulation, let's say, to business, to the benefits of that regulation. Now, the benefits of reducing pollution include all sorts of things, but certainly a big chunk of it is the benefits of better health. And as the epidemiology literature tells us, one of the big benefits to health of reducing pollution is to lower the risk of dying prematurely. And so when we want to tally up all the benefits of pollution, we want to include the benefits to reduced mortality. And we want to compare the benefits to the cost in the same numeraire. So we want to use money as a way to compare the benefits to the cost. So we need to monetize the lives that are saved by these regulations. And that's where the VSL comes in.
0: Got it. And, you know, this might go without saying, I should have said it at the outset of our conversation. Um, But, you know, we're talking about VSL today because the concept has been used quite a bit by people in the last couple of weeks when thinking about, uh, you know, the coronavirus and, you know, how what types of efforts should be made uh, to uh, to protect people uh, from from the epidemic, uh, and how you know how much economic pain uh, is it you know quote unquote worth to to protect the lives of 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 certain people that's just kind of motivating this entire conversation today we're going to come back to the coronavirus specifically uh, in a few minutes but let's talk a little bit more about uh, the origins of uh, vsl can you talk a little bit about kind of where the value of a statistical life this concept that we use today where it comes from sure well, there's a, a great paper by uh, a former colleague
1: of mine, Spencer Bansoff, who is now at the uh, Georgia State University. And he wrote a paper called The Cold War Origins of the VSL, hmm. uh, where he goes into all this history. And uh, I actually, I knew where the VSL term itself came from, but I didn't know where the sort of the analytical cost-benefit uh, use of the values of reducing mortality, started. And where that started is actually um, with the U.S. Air Force in the late 40s, 1940s, where um, the Air Force was interested in figuring out what the best configuration and design of bombing runs would be for bombing the Soviet Union if they needed to do that. And they really wanted to do a cost-benefit of that that included all the damages that would occur in the Soviet Union and include the costs of all the flights and the bombs. And and so the RAND Corporation did this analysis, but they forgot one thing which really angered the Air Force, which was the lives of the pilots that would be killed in these bombing runs. Mm-hmm. So they came back to RAND and said, this is unacceptable. So Rand comes back to them and says, well, um, you know, if a pilot dies, then you have to train another pilot. So the cost of a training is maybe $10,000, 15000 So we'll use that. And the uh, Air Force, of course, was not very happy about that answer <laughs> either. Uh, but fast forward uh, uh, over the next couple of decades, this concept Uh, morphed into what we called the human capital approach. And what that means is, is that uh, a life itself is worth the productivity that it provides to society. So if someone dies prematurely from whatever reason, then the loss of that productivity that they would have to society is that you would otherwise have had. That's the benefit of uh, preventing that that
0: premature death. And would that be measured by something like, you know, future earnings or uh, something like that? Yes, it would measured by future
1: earnings and medical costs that might otherwise go into that uh, as well. So, of course, that wasn't very popular either, because old people, people who are unemployed, uh, homemakers who are not in the formal workforce, uh, were not very happy about that being excluded from these calculations. Right. Uh, And gradually the idea um, was that, well, we need something that really gets at how people feel about reducing their risk of death, what their preferences are to reduce those risks. And this is where Tom Schelling came on. In 1968, this Nobel laureate uh, wrote a paper where he coined the term the value of statistical life. And he made the crucial distinction between valuing a life and valuing a reduction in the risk of dying. Mm. And that's where it started. Where the So this VSL, the S is the, is the key word. It's not the value of saving a life as it was with the human capital approach. It's the value of reducing your risk of death by a little bit. And how much are you willing to pay for those slight risk reductions to your risk of dying prematurely? And this is the distinction Shelling made, and uh, that was in 68. So here we are, um, you know, 50 uh, plus years later, and we're still using that, that term. And I should say that this term causes an enormous amount of Controversy because people kind of go value and something in the middle and life, right? They ignore they the yes, and they ignore the yes, and so there have been attempts periodically to redefine a term for this that doesn't involve valuing life, uh, but the VSL is a very sticky concept. Right,
0: we are where we are uh, certainly at the moment with this term. We are where we are. Um. So. That's a really helpful definition, or maybe not a definition, but a description of of the history of, of the term. Can we move now into a little bit about how VSL is calculated today? And I imagine there are, you know, different approaches that people take, but can you walk us through the kind of general framework for how people calculate VSL?
1: Yeah, well, the first thing is to understand exactly what this concept is from an arithmetic point of view. So, Suppose that there's a million people in a city and you can have some regulation that's going to reduce uh, the probability of death by one in a million. And what that really means is for a million people, somebody in that city is going to is going to not die that would have otherwise died by cleaning up the pollution, let's say. Mm -hmm. So we're saving one life. Nobody knows whose life it'll be, but we're saving one life. And um, and then we ask people or we find out however we do that, which is the next thing I'll say, uh, and we find out that each person on average is willing to pay ten dollars to know that the risk of them dying prematurely is going to go down by one in a million. Right. And so then we add up those ten dollars for each person in the in the city. So that's ten million dollars. So the value of a statistical life is ten million. And what it is formally, it's the willingness to pay to reduce your risk of death divided by what that risk change actually is. And in this case, it's one in a million. So it's ten divided by one in a million. And that's ten million. So that's how it works. Now, where does this $10 come from? Right. So basically, there are two techniques. One's called revealed preference, and the other's called stated preference. So the revealed preference techniques are observations and statistical analyses of how people in their everyday lives trade off small changes in risk of death for money and the most popular uh, approach for getting this estimate about people's preferences for trading risk for money is called the hedonic wage approach. So what we know is that people in riskier jobs than other people all other things equal get paid a wage premium for taking that added risk. So if you know what those wage premiums are and you know what the added risk is, that's the numerator and denominator of this VSL calculation. And those uh, studies yield this estimate actually of about ten million dollars
0: per statistical life. Mm-hmm. So like if I so if we're if we're looking at people working risky jobs, let's say people working on an oil and gas rig or people working on, you know, sort of dangerous fishing vessels, we sort of observe the change in their risk of dying. And then we observe how much additional uh, money they're paid for that job compared to some other similar job that doesn't have that risk of death. Is that right? Yeah,
1: exactly. We uh, we notice that people on oil rigs have a higher risk of dying than people sitting in an office on the job,
0: right?
1: So that's the difference in risk. And then we know the wage premium that people on that oil rig get paid. And so then we have the pieces to make calculate the VSL. Now, remember, people on that oil rig, they probably don't have PhDs. So you need to correct when you do the statistical analysis, you need to correct for differences in education or gender or race or other factors that actually do affect wage differentials across industry. But once you do that, and you can do it in pretty sophisticated ways, that yields the wage premium that's associated with this higher risk of death. So the other approach is the stated preference approach. This approach involves using sophisticated surveys uh, to elicit people's preferences for reducing their risk of death. And this is actually an area where my research uh, specializes. So I do these studies where I ask people um, in certain context situations uh, how much they're willing to pay to reduce their risk of death by a little bit. And, uh, you know, we could go on and on about all the details of these surveys and all the checks and credibility uh, issues and uh, um, so how one can really believe the results you get from a survey, that's kind of hypothetical. It's not their observed behavior as it is in revealed preference approaches. It's their stated behavior uh, in within these surveys. And those surveys tend to yield a number that's actually lower than the 10 million that you get from the wage hedonics um,
0: in, in the range of three to five million dollars. Great. Um- so we've got these two approaches, the stated preference approach that you just described and then the revealed preference approach, which you described earlier. And I imagine as our listeners were listening to your very nice descriptions of those two approaches, they're maybe thinking about some of the pitfalls of either approach uh, and, you know, maybe some like moral landmines lurking uh, within within these methodologies that, that could, um, you know affect uh, your calculation for a VSL. So one that came to mind uh, when you were describing the revealed preference approach, it seems to me that looking at people's uh, wage premium associated with uh, more risky jobs, that kind of assumes that those individuals in those jobs have full information, right? They have a perfect understanding about the additional risk that they are taking on. And I imagine in some cases that that might not be the case. Um, But there are probably some other kind of ethical and moral complexities here. So can you talk us through what some of those uh, landmines might be? Sure. Well, the hedonic wage studies kind of echo the human
1: capital approach, actually, because um, they're only looking at the preferences of people who actually work. So these people tend to be healthier than people who don't work. So who are disabled, let's say, I I don't work very much. Uh, And of course, they're younger. We're We're not picking up the elderly where most of the deaths that would be avoided, certainly by pollution, uh, that's the,
0: that's the group that's at risk, right? And in the context of coronavirus, too, right? Of course, that's that's where we see the greatest risk as well. Exactly. so uh,
1: so those groups are uh, not polled, if you will, doing that kind of analysis. Now, in the stated preference uh, approach, you get to choose. Uh, Who takes the survey and you can have uh, what we usually try to do is a random sample of adults and uh, so we get the elderly people we get infirm people we get healthy working adults Uh, we get the full range of people if the sample is large enough Uh, but of course the problem with the stated preference approach is that it's hypothetical it's within a survey context and so as I noted you have to take great pains to prove that what people are saying has internal validity that it makes sense on its face as best as you can where with the wage premium uh, as you rightly say daniel workers don't necessarily know what their risks really are these added risks they have an anecdotal handle on it i would imagine but they don't know precisely, and so uh, that leads to problems as well. But again, there are tests that can be used to um, uh, check the validity of these responses.
0: Uh huh. That makes sense. Um, I know you said we could do a whole podcast episode, or probably seven or ten podcast episodes on the uh, on your surveys, uh, looking at VSL. But i I just want to ask one follow up question on that, which is when you do look at the survey data. Can you are there any kind of general trends that you find when it comes to, you know, different age groups uh, stating a different willingness to pay uh, to protect themselves?
1: Well, so this is where one of the moral landmines or ethical landmines uh, come into play. Uh, your listeners may remember something called a senior discount or a senior
0: <laughs> death discount. Uh, oh, I was thinking about like a senior discount at a diner or a restaurant, but <laughs> I guess there's something different here. This is something different. Uh,
1: so the EPA at one point floated the idea of uh, using a lower value of statistical life for elderly people than normal, healthy people because they have fewer years left. And uh, you could go into the literature. Uh, the state of preference literature and look at what the preferences are for older people reducing their risk of death by a given amount versus a younger person uh, reducing their risk of death by the same amount. And so you can sort of draw a curve uh, with age on the horizontal axis and willingness to pay on the vertical axis. And you can see what that curve looks like and Uh, For some studies, that curve has a a hump in it or the relevant part of it is uh, from the, let's say, the 40 year old down to the older, the older and older you get, it's sloping downwards. So the willingness to pay is lower. But there are other studies that don't show that. And it's hard to know what the motivation is underlying these willingness to pay answers that you get on surveys. But you can imagine two factors are going on. One is an older person is saying, well, I do have fewer years of life left. If they thought about this at all, they're just saying, well, I don't have that many years of life left, so I'm not willing to pay that much. But on the other side, they're saying, well, every year of life I've got left is really, really precious to me. Yeah. So it can go either way. There's not a theoretical reason to expect that line to be going down with age. And uh, and of course, it's an ethical dilemma. Are you willing as a society to value the lives of elderly people or risk reductions to elderly people lower than the value of risk reductions you apply to, um, let's say, people in the middle of their life, their most, uh, you know, in the the 40s or 50s uh, and. The EPA looked at that one long and hard and said, nah, nah, we'll use the same VSL no matter what the age. This also came up in the World Bank, a similar ethical dilemma where uh, in countries, uh, developing countries where incomes are very low, uh, you can imagine that willingness to pay uh, would likely be lower there for a given risk reduction than in a place like the United States or other developed countries.
0: Right. It would be like uh, ability to pay more more than willingness to pay or you know both would be factored in.
1: Well, both are actually always factored in uh, because your ability to pay uh, affects how much you are willing to pay. You you want to be clear with people that if they do pay this amount, that they're telling you that they're going to have less money to spend on other things. So you will get lower willingness to pay values in developing countries than developed. That's a fact. So the question is in your cost benefit analyses uh, where you're comparing interventions in various countries, do you use a lower value of statistical life in those countries and in those developing countries? Uh, Larry Summers was as the head of the World Bank back many years ago, uh, was the one that got involved in this controversy. And the answer at that time was absolutely not use the same VSL. But now it's actually routine to use a lower VSL Uh, in developing countries. uh, One reason is that when we do these studies there, we find lower values. So that's that's an easy call and. And in fact, uh, if we don't have a study, it's usually thought that the VSL is proportionally lower to their income difference.
0: Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And certainly, you know, poses all sorts of difficult uh, ethical and moral questions that always, yeah, we probably we we, will get into some of them maybe now, you know, let's move on from talking about the VSL kind of in theory to the VSL in the real world. Um, You've mentioned a couple of, you know, an air pollution context uh, where the VSL might be used, Um, but I'd love to ask you kind of how you're thinking about the VSL now in the context of the coronavirus epidemic uh, and how people are talking about it, what you think is appropriate, or what might not be appropriate. Can you just kind of give us your take on, you know, applying VSL in today's context? Yeah sure uh and i have been thinking some about this
1: as a variety of cost benefit analyses have come out that apply the vsl to value the benefits of social distancing relative to a model where you don't have social distancing and what that what that benefit is against the cost to the economy so if you have social distancing there's going to be bigger economic effects than if you don't have social distancing. Uh, and I guess my overarching feeling on this is the cost benefit analysis of this particular at this particular time of this particular choice is inappropriate. And that means that the VSL is inappropriate to even use. And the reason for that is because there's not a trade off. Economics is the science of trade-offs in society. And here, until the medical problems, until the health problems are kind of over that hump, that is, until we get into that flattening of the curve that everyone's talking about, uh, the economy just cannot get started again. Even if all these restrictions were lifted, no one would go back to work. So it's not a trade off now after we've moved beyond that hump and the curve starts going down and maybe we're pretty sure it's going lower and lower in terms of death rates and confirmed cases, then it would be appropriate to look, use cost benefit analysis to help decide how fast you try to get back to normal, how fast you limit restrictions on social distancing and then the vsl would be appropriate
0: can you can you alan elaborate a little bit more on why why there's no trade-off right now where whereas there would be a trade-off in the future i mean some some people certainly have voiced the possibility that there could be a trade-off, right? I mean, famously, the lieutenant governor of Texas suggested that, you know, he and other grandparents would be willing to sacrifice themselves for their grandchildren's, you know, economic benefit. So it seems like some people are thinking about those trade-offs. Do you, do you think that's just sort of a too morally fraught to consider, or is there like a technical reason that you're um, no. uh, saying that?
1: No, this is a more of a personal observation from reading and watching Uh, the news and uh, querying myself and my friends and family and um, that. I don't see that trade off happening society wide. Of course, we we all feel this this trade off is potentially out there. But I think until we get kind of on the way down on that uh, death curve that uh, as a society uh, we can't we can't do that, but that's not a professional opinion that's a that's my own opinion mm-hmm. but eventually, as I said, the v s l and cost benefit analysis can be useful so then the question is what v s l would you use uh to when you're doing the benefits of a faster or a slower removal of social distancing restrictions so here there's a bunch of issues that come up. And there's some on both sides of whether you would want to use a higher or a lower VSL. So there have been a bunch of studies that show that when the cause of a death is more dreaded, the willingness to pay to avoid that death is higher. So um, imagine comparing the willingness to pay or avoiding a cancer death or avoiding a reduction, in the risk of dying from cancer. That would be the more technical way of saying it to avoid the reduction in the risk of dying from cancer versus the willingness to pay for the same risk reduction of dying in an automobile accident. The latter is really quite familiar. This happens every day. Um, people feel they're in control, even though a lot of times they're not. Um, and the death comes often quite swiftly. Compare that to cancer, where you often feel you have utterly no control. Um, and, uh, it can be a terrible death. And it, it affects a lot of people around you. I guess both kinds of deaths would affect a lot of people around you, but uh, it's definitely a dreaded uh, way of going uh, relative to dying in an automobile accident. So those value statistical lives tend to be higher for cancer than they are for uh, dying in an automobile accident. Now, let's compare cancer to a coronavirus. I would no one's done the study yet, but I would venture that if you did that study right now the dread for coronavirus would be totally off the scale off the charts so that would tend to push the vsl up um one of the reasons would be that there's no cure or there's no even medicine to uh help you not die there are ventilators but that's about it so um In cancer, we have a lot of treatments. Uh, Survival rates are lengthening. So, you know, there's hope. Right. But coronavirus, once you get to a certain point, you know, there's really nothing that can be done. So I think, so that's really dreaded. That would lead to a higher VSL. On the other side, this is a little technical, but um, the fact that the death rates are so high, let's say they're about 2%. That is in the population, uh, once you're a confirmed case, your chance of dying is about two percent. But in the general population. It's hard to know what that I haven't seen a statistic on what that uh, that risk is. If it's in the pollution range, like if you have a pollution rule that reduces the risk of death, generally, Uh, setting a tighter ambient air quality standard or in the range of one in 10,000.
0: Right. So much lower percent. percent So much
1: lower potentially, but maybe not. It really depends on how many people uh, not only are asymptomatic, but how many people don't actually even get it. So you'd want to take the number of deaths divided by the entire population is sort of the, the, the test. And we don't know where that is going to ultimately be. But that's the kind of statistic that you would want to use here. So I would venture that those death rates are probably pretty low and in the range of the pollution rates. So that would mean that the VSL on that score alone would be uh, appropriate. uh, To use the the ten million dollars or something even larger. Uh, But on the other side, there is this distinction that we talked about earlier that between the revealed preference wage hedonic studies, which get you in the 10 million range and the stated preference studies that get you in the three million, four or five million range, which have the elderly people in them and the disabled and infirm people in them, which may be more appropriate. And if that's the case, then maybe you want to use a lower VSL that appropriately captures uh, those groups. But uh, as I say, uh, these decisions are fraught with ethical and moral dilemmas. Uh, So my guess would be you would end up using uh, 10 or maybe doubling it for the dread to 20 million. I don't know. Uh, But but that's the kind of calculus one would have to go
0: through as an analyst trying to do these benefit cost analyses. Right. That's so interesting. And so so we're we're pretty much out of time uh so i think you know one of the key takeaways for me is going to be as the months go on and uh we start to think about trade-offs and we start to see people producing these types of analyses which we already have or at least i already have and i expect we'll see more of them um just sort of you know we'll need to keep a very critical eye on understanding the assumptions that underpin Uh, the VSLs uh, that people are using and and sort of treat them with uh, the range and sort of caution that at least to me they seem to deserve. Uh, I I agree with that and in fact my guess
1: would be that most analysts would want to punt on this question and just use the standard VSL that EPA and other agencies use which is 10 million dollars per statistical life Uh, and then what You might see being done, and I've seen this in one analysis already by another colleague of ours at University of Wyoming, Jay Shogren and his team, is to use a break even analysis. And so they they say, well, they actually find using the ten million dollar number that um, the benefits of social distancing outweigh the costs. By about five times. And then they say, well, what VSL would equate benefits and costs? And so they get a much lower VSL. If the VSL is lower than, you know, a million dollars or something like that, then in that case, the costs would outweigh the benefits. So you might see analyses like that of break even analyses that would tell you, well, if you really think the VSL is kind of small,
0: then. You know, you should get rid of this social distancing faster. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Alan uh, Krupnik, again from RFF, thank you so much uh, for talking us through this complex and morally fraught issue. Um, it's not an easy task. And, um, and yeah, you've done a great job. We really appreciate it. And normally uh, on the show, we have a question at the end of each episode called Top of the Stack, where we ask you what you're reading and listening to and enjoying lately. Um, I don't actually have one prepared for today because we organized this uh, podcast at the last minute. Uh, But Alan, I'm wondering, do you have any uh, books or movies or anything you've been watching and enjoying lately? Uh, Well, I have one that I've been reading that's appropriate. I have a book I've been reading
1: that's appropriate to this discussion. And it's a book that uh, my neighbor, uh, David Marwell, has written and just came out uh, just before the outbreak uh, and it's about uh, Mangala, commonly termed the angel of death. And within that book, uh, it very carefully lays out uh, the Nazi strategy uh, and underlying rationale for uh, killing people in concentration camps. And the idea was that The benefit to the group is outweighs the benefit to individuals. So the Hippocratic Oath says uh, you your duty as a physician, as a medical person, is to make that individual better. And the Nazis turned that around and said your duty as a physician is to make the society better, particularly the German society better. And so the the focus on society. Overwhelmed the focus on the individual and was the rationale underlying the medical profession and people like Mengele, who was a physician, uh, justified this killing of Jews and other groups, undesirable groups in concentration camps, and uh, David's book goes through this uh, uh, in a very compelling, highly readable manner. So I would recommend it to anyone.
0: Great. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Although I have to say, after a long day of uh, childcare and work and watching the news, I'm not <laughs> sure if I have the appetite to read about the Nazis. Uh, but you know, but maybe some of us do. Maybe they do, and and you can read it after things are all better. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great. Well, one more time, Alan, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, talking us through VSL and, um, and giving us your, your Nazi book recommendations. We <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate
1: it. Uh, you're welcome, Dale. It was a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.